The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Let's take our Bibles now, if you'll open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And our subject for the past 10 weeks has been the doctrine of the church as we examine this, this only organization that the Lord has given to do His work in the world. We continually emphasize the church because we're dedicated uh, to it. We're dedicated to promoting it because our Lord did leave no other instructions for us than what he gave his apostles in the scriptures and what he gave concerning his church. We are Christians, and as Christians, we follow Christ, we obey his instructions, and part of the way that we do that is by following the patterns that we have in the New Testament Uh, In these scriptures, Christ began the church during his personal ministry, and then through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the apostles started churches in uh, different places of the world. Most of the organizational plans that Christ gave to the church are found in the Pauline epistles. And if you don't understand what I mean by Pauline, that would simply be the instructions that are given in the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches that he founded and others founded during the first century. Those would be in southern Europe and in Asia Minor. And what Paul did was to focus his ministry mainly on non-Jewish people, although He would go into the synagogues and the towns that he visited and he would begin to speak there because there was a commonality that he would have with the Jewish people. But primarily his gospel went to the Gentile nations, to non-Jewish people because it was a gospel for the nations. And I think I mentioned this perhaps in the last sermon that Gentiles is simply a word that means the nations. And that's who the Apostle Paul gave his instructions to, churches in the Gentile part of the world. Well, as he founded these churches, he he gave them uh, the elements of Christianity and then left the responsibility for carrying on that work with leaders of the church. Those that we now call the pastors, the elders, the bishops of the church, they're the ones who have the responsibility of, of carrying on this instruction of God's word. Now, in our text here in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote to a leader, that that was to Timothy, who was then the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And in this chapter, he gave qualifications for pastors and deacons. Now, both of those are officers in the church, but the primary office in the church is that of the pastor, and that's what we are considering today in this third part of this message Uh, the work of the pastor in the church. So the apostle writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, this is a true saying. If a man desired the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, 
having its children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, after two weeks of study about the pastor, now into this third week, I don't know, there may be some of you who wonder why this is so important to us. Why, why aren't we studying something else? Why aren't we looking at something that has to do with perhaps your personal problems or some other subject that would be, that you think might be of much more benefit to you? And if that's what's on your mind, then I think that the reasons for why we would look at this passage and study about the pastor will become more apparent to you as we go through today's message. In the assembly of the church, the pastor would be the one who is your primary connection to the Word of God. And I don't say this arrogantly, or I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, when, when I say that, that everything that you are and that you hope to be in the service of our Lord comes through God's Word. You're not going to learn anything about God unless you are into the Word of God and the teaching of the Word that's given by God's appointed ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say to you is that you need the pastor. And uh, I hope that you understand that, that you need the pastor in your life. And I'm going to talk some about that today. The person who teaches you to adhere to the standards of the Word of God hopefully, is that pastor who stands before you in the pulpit every Sunday morning. Now, Paul gives us these standards as they were spoken to him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So for two weeks, we have talked about the pastor, and we, we began with teaching how the pastor, or telling you how the pastor was chosen, is chosen for the office. So very briefly, just to review that information, the first heading that you find on your listening sheet today is the call to the office. This is what we dealt with. The pastor is called to his position with both an internal and an external call. The internal call is the impression of the Holy Spirit on his mind that gives him the desire for the office. I can't explain to you how that feels other than to say when a pastor is called, he knows it. He knows when God has spoken to him. The Holy Spirit impresses him in his mind that he has a call to preach. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that that call will be accompanied by any particular type of feeling, so I can't tell you what that is, and yet every man who has experienced it knows it. He, he should be confident of it. You can't really explain it, but you know it. I can't speak to what other pastors experienced when they were called, but I can tell you when I was called, I was impressed with this that I should respond. And I'll tell you that it was accompanied by much prayer. Uh, I wanted to be sure that I properly interpreted the call of God upon my life and that I didn't seek the office out of pride, not out of arrogance, and certainly not as a power play that I wanted to rule over God's people. Well, that part of the call, the inward call, is a subjective call. And so the inward call is not all that I relied on. I'm the only one who can know about that call, who can earnestly say that I feel it. But I was quite sure that what I also needed was an outward call. And that outward call is the one that is confirmed by others 
who see the gift that God has given to the man. And that becomes the objective confirmation to the office. The internal call, again, is subjective. Only I know that experience. But that outward call is the objective agreement of the church to the aptitude of the man for the office. And that's done by external observation, by external testing. Now, if the man and the church are both listening to the Holy Spirit, then they will agree. The call will be confirmed, and thus the church has its pastor. But we all know that process isn't always perfect because we're all fallible people. I may choose to do something wrongly, so you may you, but I think that we can see that the method that the Lord has given us is the way that the church has survived through all of these centuries, through 20 centuries. This is the method that we've used, and here we are, still standing today, all this time, preach after all the time, preaching the Word of God. So I wanted to give you two weeks of teaching on that point. So hopefully it would instill in you, if you didn't have it, some confidence that what I tell you is true and that the Holy Spirit has qualified me to teach this to you and for you to receive it. Both of us are not convinced by this, then I don't have the confidence to teach you and neither do you have the confidence to listen and to follow. Well, today I want to move on from the call Uh, to what I am supposed to do, and pastors in general are supposed to do for the church. How do we relate to each other as I represent the teaching of Christ and the apostles to you? I'd like to look then, secondly, at the duties of the office. And for this, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. In the First Timothy passage, the apostle only lightly touches on duties, But in other places, such as Ephesians 4, he gives us more information that whatever the Lord calls his people to do, he will gift them with the abilities to perform the work that he has called them for. Now, that's not to say that all of the knowledge that's needed to perform this gift of the ministry is given immediately. I would dare say that you're not going to get all that you would need by attending a seminary. You're not going to get it by attending a Bible college. You're not going to get it even attending a church for a few weeks or months. Uh, no, much of this, what, what we do as pastors, it's not gained immediately. And what we learn is that experience is often the best teacher. I know more now than I did 20 years ago. And that's not just from studying the Word of God. It's also from the experiences that I've been through as I've pastored this church. I've learned through my mistakes. And some of you will readily say, and I will admit, that I still make mistakes. I've learned through the successes that we've had. I know generally what works and doesn't work. And I wouldn't know that unless I had the time to live through that being your pastor. And this is why I I think that we should value long times of pastorate, uh, of a man being in the pastorate, rather than changing men every two or three years like like many places do. Now, there's value to this of going through the experiences of the people and you experiencing things with me. Now, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is a good place for us to look at duties of the pastor. Here the apostle writes, beginning in verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for 
the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now we've noted that the, the church was not created fully formed. The Lord gave no instructions in what he taught about pastors and deacons, uh, not as offices of the church. He didn't give us any instructions about membership and the elements that, uh, of membership, what you are supposed to do, particularly in, in relation to the church as a body. Now, he did inform us about how we are to live and what we are to do and about our salvation, about our eternal life and those types of things. But specifically about church organization, we don't find that in the Lord's teachings. That was given to the apostles. So when the Lord left, he left a church that was in its infancy and then he ascended into heaven and then he left the church to be developed through the instructions of the apostles. Now, in this passage, we still find some of the temporary offices that are mentioned here that don't exist in the church today. For example, he speaks of apostles. We don't have apostles in the church today, at least not in the sense of the New Testament apostles and the relationship that they had being specially chosen by the Lord to give uh, the inspired words of Scripture and the inspired words that God had them speak to the people. There are no apostles today, not in the same calling and function as the original prophets or apostles. Then we also see the use of the word prophets here. And and we would say that before the scriptures were completed, special revelation was given to some people. And it was necessary until the word of God was completed. For example, in the book of Acts, we have a prophet who is mentioned by the name of Agabus. He predicted a worldwide famine. He also told Paul that he would be taken uh, by the, the, the uh, Gentiles, by the Romans, and, and that he would be handed over to them for judgment. But since the completion of the New Testament, we don't have a need for prophets in, in the church today, not someone who would tell the future as they did then. We have prophets in another sense, that is through the preaching of the Word of God, what's already been revealed But we don't have the prophets today because everything that God wants us to know is sufficiently revealed through his scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it tells us there that the word of God is sufficient to supply us for every work that God has given us to do. So we needn't look elsewhere for God to tell us something that he hasn't already revealed in his word. Then I also want to mention, just just in passing here, that he mentions evangelist. We use that term today, but we don't see anyone doing the same type of work as an evangelist in the New Testament. I'm not going to spend time on that this morning, but in one of our discussion classes, if you want to hear more about it, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. But for now, we concentrate on pastors and teachers. And what we could do, we could separate that and speak specifically about pastors and specifically about teachers. But we do know this, according to the Word of God, that teaching is a very, very integral part of the pastoral office. Now, the office of pastor, then, looking at this passage, is one of two that still survives in the church today. What is the pastor to do? What are his duties? Well, first, and I've already just briefly mentioned this, the pastor has the duty to instruct the church. Everything 
that he does is essential to ministry. But among whatever else he does, he fails in his duty if he does not teach the church. Now, in our scripture reading of 1 Timothy chapter 3, it tells us there that the man chosen must have the ability to teach. Now, it's interesting that in the 1 Timothy passage that Paul only mentions one duty, and that is the duty of teaching. And so in Paul's mind, this must have been primary. And though certainly Paul did speak of his own qualifications, that why God called him or how God called him, personal qualifications that he had, we see that his letters are mostly consumed with instructions, telling the people of the church, what they are to do, how they are to live. So this is what the pastor does. He must equip the saints. He must help them to grow. The word that we have here is perfecting the saints. And that means to bring them to maturity in the faith. And the pastor does that by teaching the word of God. Now, teaching and preaching are not precisely the same, but they overlap. Preaching is for exhortation, it's for evangelism, for encouragement. Well, when we speak of teaching, it primarily concentrates on fully discipling the believer in Jesus Christ so that he may observe all the commandments of Christ. And this is what it says in the Great Commission, that we are to go out and preach the gospel. Then we are to baptize as we are doing this afternoon, and we are also to disciple people, to teach them to obey all things that Christ has commanded. And so this is part of the pastor's job. He instructs the people on the doctrines of the faith. And I think that this means that what the pastor must not do is always to confine himself to the simple doctrines of the gospel. You need to know how to be saved, that's for certain. All of us need to know how to be saved and how to tell others how to be saved. But we also need to be taught the other doctrines of God's Word. These are doctrines that will help bring us to maturity and to a better understanding of our salvation. But there are ministries that concentrate mainly on the simple gospel, that what you will hear week after week is about how to be saved. That's great. And about soul winning, that's a wonderful thing to do. About Christian living, we all do need to hear that. Those are very important topics. But if that's all that you get, then you're never going to be strong in the faith. You need to hear all of the doctrines of God's Word. And there's more to God's Word than just those subjects, even though all of it's intertwined and comes together in the instruction of the church. Now, what, the, what God wants us to be, and Christ in his church wants us to be, is fully grounded so that we can appreciate what God has done for us in salvation. And we come into a fuller appreciation of it as we hear all of the doctrines of the faith. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul spoke of returning to Thessalonica to finish what he started there. He started a church there. And what he wanted to do was to perfect the people in the areas of their faith that was lacking. So he writes in the ninth and 10th verses, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and 
might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now, obviously, Paul is not speaking of saving faith in that passage. There's none of us that can be more saved than we are. He's talking about here their maturity in the faith. What is lacking? What don't they know in the faith? What doctrines of God's word do they still need to learn? And Paul was concerned about that, that their lack of faith, not knowing these doctrines, would not allow them to be as strong in their stand for Christ and to endure all the persecutions they would go through. It would not give them the hope that they needed in Christ if they didn't have all the doctrines of the word of God. I think that we can see in Paul's letters to, as an example, his letters to the Romans and to the Ephesians, that New Testament Christians were probably far ahead of us in their doctrinal understanding. Even with all the tricks and tools that we have today, with the computer programs, the ease of finding information, I think that we're probably behind those early Christians now, the amazing thing is that there are many people who want to stay that way. I mean, they'll just sort of plainly let you know that doctrine is not what they need. They don't need more doctrine. Instead, they do have those felt needs. Those are the things they'd like you to concentrate on. They want the personal problems solved. They want you to address those. There's nearly really nothing wrong with us doing that. We do it from time to time. But felt needs seem to be something that just takes over the church. And what you really need, though, is an answer to those problems that comes through a foundation in the Word of God so that you learn how to solve and deal with these things yourselves. And this is one of the pastor's jobs to help you teach you, help teach you those doctrines. And you may not understand it now, but your greatest need is to know God's Word because that's where you find the answers for your entire life. Now, much of the time... Paul's letters concentrated on hard doctrine. Even Peter said that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. But as we look at the New Testament, the people must have studied them. They must have learned these doctrines. They must have leaned hard upon the Holy Spirit to show them the meaning of them because it appears that they understood in just a few words what it takes us mountains of arguments to get through. We have only just a few words in the New Testament to explain to us what God has to say to us, to give us his doctrines, and yet, as you know, we spend much, much time arguing and debating over it all. I mean, how much have people argued about Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9? How much have they argued about Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians 2? Those are two places in Scripture, those four chapters are one of the greatest battlegrounds of Christianity today and have been throughout the centuries of the church. An unending battleground. But it appears that the Romans and the Ephesians must not have been completely lost in the arguments that Paul gave. They must have reached some understanding of these marvelous works of God. And I think that they were probably willing to accept what they heard without trying to fight their way around it and trying to make Paul say what he didn't say. What we need is more pastors who tell more than what they've been telling. Instruction is vital for ministry, the ministry of the pastor. People depend on it. And without it, we're weak Christians, which leads to weak churches. 
Now, secondly, it's the pastor's duty to shepherd the church. Now, the pastor is to shepherd. Shepherding also involves teaching, but it's a broader term than instructing. I can instruct you by reading the word, pointing out the details of it, perhaps giving you some academic knowledge of the scriptures. But if that's all that you need, I have a library over here that you could borrow. Well, no, maybe you can't borrow my books but because uh, I don't get them back. But in certain cases you might. I can loan you books that you can read, and that will help you if that's all that you need. But you need more than that. You need a relationship with the one who teaches you. Now, I'm not, technically speaking, a pastor to those who are outside of the church. Now, I instruct visitors who attend our services. I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to be all the help that I can be to anyone. But truthfully, people need more. They need a shepherd who is in a relationship with them. The pastor is the shepherd of what? The shepherd of the church. And the church is a mutually committed relationship. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but listen, our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Isn't that a great scripture? A marvelous scripture. You aren't merely students in a classroom, and I'm not to look at you that way. Not just someone simply to instruct, but rather people who are to be a part of my life. And you, to have me a part of your life. That's the shepherding of the pastor. So our relationship with each other is a, is a loving partnership. And I want your children to consider me as someone, and you to consider me as someone they desire to see as I desire to see you. And this is what Paul wrote in that scripture, praying exceedingly that we might see your face. Well, how else does a shepherd, the pastor shepherd the flock? Well, he feeds in the word of God. We've already learned that. Feeding them the word helps them to grow. And by helping you to mature in the faith, the pastor guards and protects the flock. You remember that Paul warned the Ephesian elders that as soon as he left, the enemy would come. And he said, the enemy will Scatter the flock. Grievous wolves were in or among you, not sparing the flock, is what he said. And isn't that interesting how he described false teachers? We might even say there's a description there of bad pastors. They're wolves. Peter said they're wells without water. They're clouds carried about with a tempest. The mist of darkness, he said, is reserved for them forever. That's strong language. Language that you're not going to hear in most churches today. And what the pastor has the responsibility to do is to keep all that garbage away from the flock. He has to protect the flock. And yet there are pastors that invite heresy into their pulpits. They don't check people to see what they're going to teach and what they have to say about the Word of God. Just anybody's acceptable anymore. You might wonder, why is it that Berean Baptist is not particularly ecumenical? You may wonder, why do we separate? Why don't we hook up with every church in town? And here's the reason. It's because I'm to shepherd you. I'm not to invite wolves with false doctrine to come and just lie down with God's sheep. 
Folks, we separate on doctrine. The Word of God is important to us. It matters to us. It rules our lives. And so I'm not interested in anything but the truth of God's Word. All the rest is vanity. It's useless. It's not helpful. We don't need it. And if that separates us from the rest of the world, then so be it. Paul said, come out, separate yourselves from them. Don't touch the unclean thing. And we start right here. You, you drive into our, our church and right there on the corner, there's a sign that says Baptist on it. Baptist. That sign is the beginning point of separation. We're separating because of the doctrines that are behind that name. And we believe those doctrines to be the same as taught by the New Testament. It's necessary to shelter you from bad doctrine. That's not New Testament. Because bad doctrine destroys the faith. There's a reason, there is a reason that we, we are Baptists. Now, as your pastor, I'm the part, Pat, one who's, who's charged with that spiritual education as the one responsible in church relationship to see that you are sanctified and growing to maturity in the faith. And I promise you, until the last opportunity that I have to stand in this pulpit, that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to protect you and keep you free from the errors of false Christianity. Now, the third duty of the pastor is to administer in the church. Pastor is a bishop. He is an overseer. I'm to watch over all the functions of the church. All the ministries of the church are within my purview. Now, first, we need to understand that the pastor is responsible for everything that happens in the church. I think one of the ways that we can determine this is uh, from the letters, from the Lord's letters to the churches of Asia. We notice in Revelation 2 and 3 that all the letters that he wrote were addressed to the pastors of those churches. And I think that we see in that a sense of accountability for pastors that allowed for things that were wrong to go on and also that churches were expected to do, but they didn't. And what the pastor might do is to delegate some of his work. He should. That's the reason that pastors have assistance and why they assign work to others. Part of equipping others for the ministry is to give them hands-on experience. It's not necessary and it's unadvisable for a pastor to attempt to do all things in the church. That's bad for you and it's bad for him. And yet the pastor still must be careful to watch all that's done in the ministry, that it's biblical, that it's right for the church. And again, I think you see that in, in the letters to the churches of Asia and Paul's instructions to churches. A pastor deludes himself if he thinks that he is better at everything than everyone else. I think that's the folly of some pastors. They think we're just better. We just do things better than anybody can do them. And that is simply not true. The Word of God shows that pastors had something else left to learn. The apostles told uh, the church in Acts chapter 6, when they, when they appointed the first deacons, they, they said, appoint some people over this business so we can dedicate ourselves to prayer and to the word. They needed to get closer to God themselves. They needed to learn more of the word of God themselves. Not that they knew it all. So they divided up some of the responsibilities. 
So these are primary duties of the pastor, instructing, shepherding, and administering. Everything that we do will fall into those categories. Now I'd like to finish with you today and this subject by going back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Primarily there, 1 Timothy relates the the third aspect of what I want to speak of, and that is the character of the pastor. When the church agrees to a man's claim that is an inward call to the ministry, what are the areas of his life should the church regard? What is in his life that would signify it is okay for the church to issue an outward call? Well, Paul carefully here guards the church or guides the church of what it should consider. Look at verse number 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Every one of those qualifications can be developed into a message. But it's only with great difficulty that you would endure it. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to summarize what we have here and concentrate mainly on verse number 2. And as I do, I want you to recognize it's good for us to learn this because there's nothing here that shouldn't be considered as good qualifications for every man in our church. Every man should look at this and say, can I be this kind of a man? So it's important for us to learn it, not only in relation to the pastor, but also to you as a Christian man in the Lord's church. Now the first thing that Paul puts before us here is that a pastor must be blameless. And that means that the pastor must not have things in his life that brings reproach upon Christ and upon his office. There is no overarching sinful defect in his life. A pastor must guard himself from falling. And why must he guard himself? Because quite frankly, he is the biggest target of the enemy. There's a bull's eye on the pastor's back and one on the front as well, right over his heart. The pastor is the face of the church in many respects. And so Satan goes after him like he does no other member. And a failed pastor is a direct path to a failed church, and Satan knows it. And so if you think that you're tempted, and you think that Satan bothers you every day, you ought to try living in the shoes of the pastor. There are myriads of issues many of which you're not even aware of, that are potential harm for the man and for the church that he knows and he has to protect the church from. The pastor must be a vigilant man, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, that he must abstain from all appearance of evil. Everything that I do is scrutinized. I stand before you and preach every week. Everything that I say is going to get a comment from somebody in some way. It's all going to be scrutinized. And when I do it, Wrongly, somebody is going to bring that up to me. Whether it even appears to be wrong, this is what I'm going to hear. And so the pastor must guard himself because when he falls, the effect that it has on the flock is more devastating than the fall of any other person. 
People have more reasons to accuse the church and turn from Christ if the pastor fails. Now look at how the world treats scandals in the church. Who do they go to? Now bear in mind this, that the world does not and will not differentiate between false and true Christianity. They don't know how. To them, all of us, no matter our stripe, we represent Christ. We represent our religion. One of the, one of the most horrible of recent scandals was the revelation of sexual misconduct of the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. Some of you probably read about that. You know about it. This one hit close to home because he was not one of the raving lunatics of charismania or the word of faith movement. He was, uh, and they're the ones, you know, that are frequently defined by scandalous activity. Ravi Zacharias, though, was a man who shared platforms with good people, with good, solid men of the word of God. Shared platforms with John MacArthur and other respected men. Then after he died, these stories started coming out and, and they apparently were not false accusations. They were substantiated. And so the critics of Christianity came out in droves, and we have to admit, they had a right to throw stones at the apologist of the Christian faith, at us in general, especially when the, when the apologists turned out to be rogues. And then they're appalled by the abuse of Roman Catholic pedophile priests. And unfortunately, good pastors are just lumped in with all of that group because the world can't differentiate between us. They don't know. And what we can't do as pastors of the Lord's churches, true pastors, is to provide ammunition for their cannons. Don't give them the arrows to shoot at us. Now it's sad that many churches are not taught well on this subject. And many pastors are returned to ministry when 30 days before they were dragging morality through the mud. Those are disqualifying sins. Those things disqualify you from the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I would have to say that there are many Baptists that are involved in that as well. I've seen cover-ups of ministries that have gone bad. I have known and seen of sexual abuse by pastors that churches, most of us would assume, are solid in the faith. But then, the same churches turn around and hide these sins and often return these men into ministry in other places, just shuffling them around. Now, the church has to be careful of this because the reputation of the men that they agree to, to issue the outward call, is detrimental to the health of the church. Now, looking at this next qualification, this one is truly expected if you, if you know the, and understand the New Testament. I've told you many times before, that heading the list of sins that we find in New Testament, whenever there are lists that are given, this is almost always at the top, almost always there's sexual sin. One of the weakest points of our human nature is sexual relationships. And for that reason, Paul includes this in his qualifications. He said that the pastor must be a one-woman man. He's to be the husband of one wife. Now, if we were looking at the original uh, Greek today, the translation of this would be, of husband of one wife, means one woman man. And I confess, there's no little bit of argument about what that means. Uh, 
There are many different interpretations that are accepted by good people. So we could discuss today whether this means that a man who has been divorced, can he be a pastor of a church? And we would be warranted to discuss that. This text is not specifically speaking of divorce. And then there are some who look at this and say, well, he's talking about polygamy. A pastor can't have more than one wife at a time. And that's how... Some people interpret it, but polygamy wasn't practiced in the Roman Empire, and uh, nobody could be a member of a church if they were a polygamist anyway, much less could they be the pastor. What this passage is speaking of, though, primarily, is the devotion of the man to his wife. That is, he is to love his wife, he is to stay with his wife, he is to honor his wife, And he's to have affections for no woman but his wife. Is that hard to understand? Well, it shouldn't be. Because sexual temptation is so rampant in churches today, as we well know. And pastors need to watch out for this because we often deal with emotionally dependent people. And what pastors sometimes do is abuse their authority. And many of them end up in affairs. I remember three years ago, or many years ago, not three years ago, but many years ago when I was in Kentucky, there were three preachers that I knew personally. Uh, They all appeared to be very good men. They had come and preached revivals in our church. But all three of those men were involved with women in their churches. That took down their ministries, destroyed what they were because they fell into that temptation And I realized that, you know, I once had an affair with my secretary. Of course, she was the secretary of the church, and she was my wife at the time when she could could be the church secretary. A pastor must be an example. His wife is the only one for him. His thoughts and actions should be only for her. So a pastor has to be careful about this, flirtations, with women, uh, people that, you know, that's not really caring about the pastor's reputation. Well, he does. He needs to be concerned about it and what that represents to the church. So a pastor must be an example. Now, we, we, we might look at this also and, and wonder, is it a qualification that a pastor must be married? Is the Bible teaching this when it says he's to be a one-woman man or husband of one wife? Does that mean, well, absolutely, he has to be a married man. Is that a requirement? Well, if that was true, then the Apostle Paul would be a very poor example because he wasn't married. In 1 Corinthians, he encouraged singleness if that was possible. He said if a, if a pastor or a, a person could uh, in, in this office could remain unmarried, he should if he could, but he didn't demand celibacy. And that's obvious from this text. A pastor does not need to be married. That's clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if he must be married, if that is a requirement, then according to these verses, in verse number 4, he must also have children. Well, we know that's not a requirement. Are there advantages to a pastor that is married? Well, I think we would all say, well, yes, there is. A pastor must counsel on marital issues sometimes. He must deal with marital problems. So, yeah, probably a good idea that he's a married man. And then for single pastors, it would also help keep them from temptation 
But there's disadvantages and advantages that are shown in the scriptures. So this is something that can go both ways. But certainly we can say that the scriptures are not teaching that before a man can become a pastor of the church, he must be married. That's not what Paul is saying. Now the third thing that Paul talks about here is that the pastor of a church must be a temperate man. You ever heard of the temperance movement? You all know what that means? The word vigilant here means temperate or abstaining, referring primarily to drinking wine. We can combine that to the first part of, with the first part of verse 3, not given to much wine. Now, there's something that I, that I want to advise you of if you want to do a little bit deeper study on the words that are given here. Uh, it could be that Paul is talking here about a sound mind, as in the sense of those who might lose good sense, and, uh, and that would, could be associated with uh, the use of alcohol. And, and Paul's probably piling up object, uh, adjectives here uh, in, in using similar meanings, only slightly different emphasis. But I don't care how you argue the point. There's no way I think that we can get around that pastors, that Paul says that pastors should not drink alcohol. Now, I don't want to make this sermon about the evils of alcohol. But if we're serious about this, about remaining blameless, then we must be careful about what we do. I I don't think that we can rightfully argue the merits. I mean, you may circle, circle that word, merits. How do we argue the merits of Christians drinking alcohol? This is the source of so many temptations and bad testimony. And pastors need to be more wary of it than anyone. Again, pastors are an example, and many times the pastor is an excuse We're examples of good and evil, and our bad behavior is sometimes an excuse for others to do likewise. So I think what Paul does here is to slam the door shut on pastors and priests with pilsners. Now you might remember this as well. Every Christian is a believer priest. But you're always to be busy about God's work. You're never, you never leave that priesthood of the believer behind. And that's the reason you should guard your life every day in what you do. Now next, the pastor must be prudent. Verse number two says he must be sober. And here the word sober means prudent. It doesn't mean sober like not getting drunk, uh, but sober as of sound mind. It means a man who considers carefully now, I'm not against saying something funny from the pulpit every now and then, but I will tell you the pulpit's not a place for a jokester. In the past few years, I've noticed this, that, that Bible colleges, many of them turn out ministerial candidates that think the way to do this is to joke your way through a sermon. That's the way to get people on your side, have enough jokes that you can tell. Have you ever thought why people prefer that kind of preaching? Why do they prefer that? Well, because it's very simply appealing to the flesh. And that's one of the things I think that Satan uses to take the focus off the word. I'm not a comedian. And when I tell a joke, it's a bad representation anyway because I can't tell jokes. It always falls flat. Now think about this though. How many sermons do you remember for the jokes rather than what the pastor preached? I mean, the word of God that he preached. How many remember the jokes? And I've heard it so many times. People going out the door will comment on a joke, but not what I taught. And, and 
How, how many of, are actually regarding that text that's been spoken? Been spoken? The, the example that always stands out in my mind, you, you've heard me say this multiple times because it's just so, uh, it's just so egregious, I think, that, that it, really, it really stands out. Some of our men remember going to a conference a few years ago where part of a preacher's sermon was telling a joke about an exploding sewage tank on an RV. I don't remember anything about that sermon except that joke. That's it. I don't remember anything else. But I do remember sermons that I've heard in other conferences. I remember sermons that had the Word of God as the focus, where the man who stood behind the pulpit thought that the Word of God, that's the most important thing that I can tell people today, and he gave a good, solid exposition of God's Word. I remember that. And some of those sermons are 8, 9, 10 years old. I can remember things that they said in those sermons. Now, fifthly, the pastor should be a gentleman. Verse number 2 says that he should be a man of good behavior. He should be a man of manners. Uh, This is an an, an interesting part of this. Uh, Let me tell you something that's been practically ignored in the modern church. I I researched the phrase that I'm talking about here, this phrase, good behavior. That's the one I've translated to you as gentleman. He should be a man of good behavior. And I wanted to check that out. What do others say about this? And I found it interesting that almost all commentators that I read, at least, would include this in good behavior, and that is the pastor's clothing. How does he present himself? How should a minister dress? Do you think that's important? I think the Bible teaches it's important for the minister, no matter where he is, to be in the right kind of dress. So you'll not catch me at the beach in a pair of Speedos and 90% undressed. Sorry to put that visual in your mind, but uh, you won't see me that way. But I have seen plenty of young guys in the ministry that I hesitate to use the word, but they look like heathens out of the pulpit. Some of them look like heathens in the pulpit to me. But what about that? What about the dress in the pulpit? I, I think where's there more need for decorum than in the pulpit? And what I'm not saying, and I don't want you to get the wrong impression about what I'm saying, I'm not saying that all pastors should dress like me. They'd sure look a lot better if they did, of course, but... Uh, All pastors need not look just like me. Sunday morning, I stand in the pulpit with a suit. That's just a personal conviction of mine. I I like to wear a suit. At other times, maybe I would choose not to wear a suit, but I would be neat and clean. I'll not dress like I'm headed for a ball game. Uh, I'll not be sloppy here and in other places that are less important, choose to be more, choose to be dressier than I am here. And I, I get this visual, or the, well, what I think in my mind is about my accountant. When I go to see him, he's always in a suit. When I go to see my lawyer, I don't actually have a lawyer. Um, when I have seen lawyers, when I've needed to, I don't have a personal lawyer. I try to stay out of trouble, so I don't have a personal lawyer. But whenever I have to go to a lawyer, how does he dress when I... Go to his office. He's in a suit. When I go to the bank, that the banker is in a suit. Now, they used to. I don't go to the bank anymore either because of the online banking and all that. But when I used to go, when I had to go there. You know, the guy's always in a suit. And I, and I look at that, and I, and I think uh, about that. 
Why would anybody dress better than a preacher of God's word? Why would they? Um, And I'm not trying to make up rules for you. I'm just throwing this out as logical conclusions. Um, A a scripture passage in in the Bible that says pastors wear a suit. That's not there. I do know that. I know that. There are just some things, folks, that I don't like. And I'm led to those conclusions by things that I read in the Word of God. So I take, for instance, I look in the Old Testament, and I see how that God was very meticulous about the garments of the priest. Everything that the priest wore was somehow related to an aspect of Christ and his work. The priest pictured Christ. The white linen, as we've studied uh, in our tabernacle studies, the white linen would stand for the righteousness of the saints and the righteousness of Christ. The blue tunic that he wore spoke of the royalty of Christ and, and of heaven. The bells on the fringe of his garment that constantly rang as he went about his duties in the, in the tabernacle, that was to show that Christ is always interceding for his people. The priest wore a band on his forehead that said, Holiness to the Lord. The garments were important. There was no haphazardness in their dress. And I think, well, if a priest in the Old Testament who had far less understanding of Christ than we have through the New Testament scriptures, if that was a man who kept himself neat and clean and in proper clothing, wouldn't you think that a pastor ought to do the same? And so when I stand here on the Lord's Day and I preach God's word, I must be conscious of the one that I represent. I realize, again, the New Testament does not mandate a pastor to wear a particular type of clothing. So he doesn't need to have wear a cassock. He doesn't need a miter on his head. He doesn't need a surplus. But despite the lack of instructions that we have in the Word of God for the priest's robes or the pastor's clothing, don't you think this teaches us something about the dignity of the office? Dress changes over the centuries. We all recognize that. There is a difference between formal attire and casual, no matter what century that you, that you lived in. We, we wear formal clothing to match the occasion. I mean, you wouldn't go to see the president in ratty jeans. Why not? Well, that's not appropriate. You wouldn't do that. It's not dignified. The president doesn't meet foreign dignitaries in his swimsuit. Unless he just needs to show them how the hair on his leg stands up. Now, if people can understand that about the president, then what do you think of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? Should I represent him looking like I've been in a bar fight? When Christ returns with thousands of his saints, what do you think they'll be wearing as they come? I think we need the same dignity in the pulpit. Now, I'm not talking about what you wear to church. I'm talking about what I wear to church and what my responsibility is standing before you representing our God. Behold our God. I stand in the place of Jesus Christ. That means something to me. It means something about reverence. I don't really need to dress like I'm 14 years old and just got off a skateboard. Pastor is to be a gentleman. He's to look the part. He is to act the part. He must look like what he does is important to reflect the dignity of his office. If you don't think it's dignified, 
then you'll think none of this is all that important anyway. And maybe that's just a small point to you. It, 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 it might be. But to me it says a lot about reverence for the one that we serve and how important this work is to us. So I don't like jokesters or hipsters in the pulpit. We speak and act the part. Now look at the clock. I've, I've exhausted my time for this morning. I understand. I realize there's much more to be said in these next verses. But what I, what I want to do is just to, to leave it here with these basics of understanding so that we see what the leadership role of the pastor is about. Paul gives instructions about the man. And how does the church evaluate the man who says that he has received the inward call? How do they evaluate? They look at his life. They examine his morality. They examine his attitude. They examine his viewpoint of the seriousness of his office. And the the church must hear the pastor preach to see if he has the aptitude for the job. What can he teach us about the Word of God? And though pastors are only human, and sometimes we fall short too many times, I hope that we can all agree to this, that God can overcome all the weaknesses of our flesh and use us for his glory. I will help you the best that I can, and you can help me by praying for me so that together we serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the word that you've given us today. And we think about this responsibility that we have for leading the church and preaching the truth of your word. We don't want to fall short of that. You've set us as a watchman for your people to warn about wickedness, to talk about righteousness. Lord, you expect us to do it and to do it faithfully. And may we in this church live by the New Testament example, by the instructions that are given by your chosen apostles to show us how we should live, act, and be in relation to one another. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ that we've sung about today, about God as our Father, and about you standing with us no matter what trials that we face. We thank you, Lord, for it. Help us in all that we do. Bless uh, with the message that's gone out today, and we pray that it has helped someone in their growth of their Christian life. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.